this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. So, what's your biggest question when it comes to selling your company? You know, when I ask that question of other entrepreneurs, I hear things like, "How do I avoid an earnout? When's the best time to sell? How do I create a bidding war?" These questions, along with many others, inspired me to write the book, The Art of Selling Your Business. It's a field guide for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. I've taken all the best practices from the 300 plus interviews I've done for this show and distilled them down into an action plan for you. You can get it along with some gifts from my listeners when you go to builttosell.com slash selling. Welcome to another edition of Built to Sell Radio. My name is John Marlowe, and my job here today is to help you punch above your weight when it comes to negotiating the sale of your company, which is something that my next guest, Raphael Zimbaroff, did with great skill. He built a company called ShipRush up to around 12 employees when he sold it for $14 million in cash plus a $3 million earnout. Not bad for a business with a dozen people. Lots to learn from Raphael in this episode. Here, what I loved about this conversation was how he thought about gaining negotiating leverage by removing his dependency on one of his key business partners, stamps.com. And I'll get him to describe that in detail. You should take away from this conversation that if you can get yourself into the payment stream, in other words, making your customer believe that you are their provider and not just a kind of somewhere along the supply chain, you're going to increase your leverage in a negotiation to sell your business. Again, Raphael would describe that in much more uh, clarity than I just did. He'll talk a little bit about how he convinced customers and even potential acquirers that they would be better off buying his product or company as opposed to trying to compete with them or building it themselves, which is probably something you've considered as well. He'll talk about how to pick an M&A provider and I think share some great wisdom on that front. Lots to, lots to take away from this episode. Here's to tell you the entire story is Raphael Zimbaroff. Raphael Zimbaroff, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks for having me here, John. Ship Rush. Can you describe this company in layman's terms? Ship Rush. Well, Ship Rush is both the name of the company and the name of the product the company made, which was an online parcel shipping application. So if you send out parcels, which typically means you're either in e-commerce, wholesale, or retail distribution, have your own website, or you sell on a marketplace like Mm -hmm. eBay or Amazon are considered marketplaces if you put your merchandise up there for sale, Mm -hmm. you need to generate parcel shipping labels for all these orders coming in. And ShipRush is a tool that lets you connect directly to all of these things, to the Amazon and eBay marketplaces, to a Shopify web store or Magento or other web store you may have set up, pull all your orders into one place, generate shipping labels and packing lists for all of those things to automate what we call the back end of the e-commerce process. 
And remember, there are many businesses that are hybrid. Some place may have, you may have a brick and mortar store or a retail location of some kind. It could be a Pilates studio. It could be anything. And you may do some portion of business online where you're actually shipping out product. So, you know, the, the range of businesses that consume a product like ShipRush is really broad. Everything from a crafter on Etsy to somebody who has you know, 20,000 SKUs selling spare parts for power tools. Sure. Right? Massive. Yeah. 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 Big range. You might, it might just be uh, a one person operation out of an apartment in Manhattan, or it could be a whole facility and in a commercial zone. So um, how did you guys make left. money? Like what was the business model? Well, in tech, there are two or three dominant business models when you're selling a software product that's on a website, right? We call these SaaS applications, right? Software as a service. Sure. We all use them, whether we're using something like, uh, like Slack or QuickBooks Online or FreshBooks or any of the tools we use. Yeah. Our, our listeners would be used to those sorts of platforms because they're running right. businesses. So yeah, QuickBooks, HubSpot, Right. Slack, all that stuff. They're all right. Yeah. So, so SaaS, I, I'm familiar with 99 bucks a month and you get access to the software or whatever. There you Is go. that the model you guys used? Or? That was absolutely our retail model, but the Shiprush okay. business was actually pretty sophisticated because it's a different kind of software. When you use something like a QuickBooks or a FreshBooks or, or any of these other tools we're mentioning, you are really just buying access to use that website, to use that app on the web. Mm-hmm. Because when Shiprush, you print a shipping label, that shipping label actually costs money, costs five, 10, 20 bucks. If you are doing freight with Shiprush, which Shiprush also did, if you were shipping your goods out on pallets, either you know you were you were selling wholesale to retailers, you had a bit, you were selling barbecues, big old barbecues sure, that sure. went on a pallet. Um, that shipment could be a few hundred dollars. So every right. time- when you say the label has, you mean the the physical label because it 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 is a direction to a shipping company and prepayment to a shipping company to move box from A to B, the actual piece of paper has value. Yeah. It's like a postage stamp. Yeah, You know, it's like a big old postage stamp that instead of being worth 50 cents is worth many dollars. So yeah, all these labels, whether it's a FedEx label or a UPS label or a priority mail label, I get it. um, Or a bill of lading that for a pallet or five pallets that are going to go on a truck, that is a business transaction. And Shiprush obviously doesn't have the truck that's going to come and pick up your package. It's FedEx or UPS or, or what have you that's actually going to do it. So because the Shiprush technology product was at the center of this larger business transaction, there are other revenue streams available to a product like Shiprush beyond the 50 or $99 a month subscription fee that everybody can see when you go to shiprush.com. Oh, I can get it. It's going to, this plan is 39 a month. That plan is 79. Okay. So how did you guys make money? I'm still kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one of the things Shiprush did differently in our space. So our space has a handful of companies that make uh, web applications similar to Shiprush. ShipStation is very popular. Shipping Easy, ShipWorks, Shiprush. There are a couple of others that are smaller. And Something that ShipRush did differently than other players in our space is we took the technology we created and we licensed pieces of it to much larger companies. 
So an example of this is the QuickBooks accounting software has UPS FedEx shipping built into it and it has had that already since 2004 or 2005. And that was done using technology licensed from ShipRush. We also licensed technology to FedEx, to eBay, to Pitney Bowes, to stamps.com. So we we knew that we could take our product to market, but we also knew that we could help solve problems for much larger companies. In the tech space, and not every business has this, but you can find things like this in the construction industry, for example, where you come up with a workflow or a tool or an approach that you can take advantage of and that you can sell yourself, but that there are other larger organizations that can even take bigger advantage of it. Yeah. And, and, this, and tech guess, is particularly I, good for those kinds of licensing arrangements. That makes a ton of sense. So in the case of like a QuickBooks, I, I'm, I'm, and I'm hearing brands like FedEx and, and, and others, these companies have like virtually unlimited resources. I mean, right. their stocks are through the roof, in particular right. any SaaS app like QuickBooks. I mean, why don't they just do it themselves? Like, why do they need a little company in Seattle? No, no right. disrespect whatsoever no, in saying fine. that, but, but really, <laughs> if you're QuickBooks <laughs> and you wanted to integrate a shipping app, why on earth would you license somebody else's stuff when you could just send three guys into a back room for a year with lots of coffee and, yep. <laughs> and yep. make it themselves? Yep. Like, what, yep. help me understand that. It's a very, very good question. It's something everybody asks. There's always the buy it or build it kind of math that happens, particularly in tech, you know, more so in tech than in a lot of other segments. And I can illustrate this with a, with a simple story. Sure. Um, so Intuit, when they had the idea of doing parcel shipping, they talked to some people at FedEx and FedEx said they should consider collaborating with ShipRush, um, which they did. When we completed that um, and that went live, we were not under any kind of exclusivity. So I went and approached Peachtree Accounting Software, which used to be the main competitor to sure. QuickBooks. And I knew the folks over at, at Sage, which is the parent company that owned Peachtree at the time. And I said, look, folks, like, you know, you can do this yourself or you can license it from us. And here's, here was the pitch I gave them. I said, why don't you scope out doing it yourself? And whatever it comes up, it comes out to costing you, just offer us half. We will say yes, and everyone wins. So that was the pitch I gave them. So they went off and took a few months. And, and this, the, the story I'm telling right now is very common in tech, parts of it, all, all the different parts of it. They went off and scoped out the project, right? Figured out where they're going to need three guys, you know, like you proposed or, or yeah, six yeah. or five months or 10 months. They scoped the whole thing out. They called me back and they said, look, we've good news. We've scoped it out. We know how long it's going to take. We know what it's going to cost. But the bad news is, we don't have a dime to pay ShipRush for this tech. We've got budget for our staff engineers to do it, and we've got calendar time for our staff engineers to do it, but we don't have any money to write a check to an external company. So, so even though you would take half the money this is actually going to cost us, we aren't in a position to do that. You got to love big companies, right? Oh God, um, you're making like, <laughs> like my, I'm just like getting like squeamish just remembering. I used to run this big uh, this this company that worked with big uh, uh, technology companies and research companies, and we helped them with their uh, understand the SMB market and so forth. 
And all this kind of nonsense about like, I don't have the budget, but if I steal it from this budget and characterize it right. as this, I can, right. re- it's just like, oh my God, how do you guys make the any contortions, money it's, it's amazing <laughs> companies function, right? Like it really, really when, when we would think about this, like how does business even survive with all yeah. these constraints and handcuffs, right? Okay. Back to Sage. They're like, Sage. we've so got money, but not the right. Right. But not, not in the right, you know, not coded the right way to be able to yeah. have this conversation with Shiprush. So they went off and did it themselves. It took them two or three times as they expected, right? So it blew their budget by 100 or 200%. They finally got it built. They got it in the product. But now you had a huge delta already, which is the people who built it were perfectly competent software engineers, but they had never built shipping software before. Whereas the stuff we built was built by people who only did shipping software and had been doing it for years and knew everything there was to know about shipping software. So their solution was missing certain key things they didn't think about that shippers knew were key, so nobody used it. So they spent not just double what they would have spent on us. They spent four or six times more in dollars. (laughs) They spent four or six times more in months and calendar time because we yeah. would have delivered to them on a, a you know in weeks instead it took them over a year or whatever and then came back to you and and, <laughs> and, and well and then, but then by then they'd already bled they'd already made all the effort they were going to make and no one was using it so how could they possibly justify further investment right like this is what happens in tech is sure. that in tech and did they make, buy, in that example did they buy from you no never And and they ended up killing the feature in their product a few years later and putting those customers on our external shrink wrap product because they had a very small number of users that they could not justify maintaining the feature. And this is one of the things about shipping software that's also different. It's about software in general. It's one of the things that makes software different than construction is that in tech, the amount that one invests when you're a business owner in maintaining the tech exceeds the amount you spent to build the tech. So yeah, and that's a difference where it's not really a capital expense, you know, that it requires ongoing care and feeding and everybody who's built a website learns this. Yeah. You Mm -hmm. stand up the website and you make this big effort and expense to stand it up and get all the pieces of it built. And then you discover you can't just, walk away from it. It needs this ongoing investment and maintenance forever, basically. And that's the nature of tech. So um, so anyway, like that's how that path went. And so to back up to your original question, why would a FedEx, why would an Intuit license from us? It's because they recognized that we could deliver on a predictable, a predictable dollar number on a predictable sketch calendar. And they would be paying us an ongoing amount of money. It wasn't a one-time investment. It was ongoing because we were going to need to give them updates, you know, multiple times a year forever and maintain all the latest and greatest stuff that UPS and FedEx add to their service. They add adult signature. They add this option. They add that option, right? So so there was an ongoing relationship. So it turns it into a turnkey. And that's what we were offering these corporate entities. We were taking all the risk away the schedule risk, the cost risk that, that the Peachtree guys encountered firsthand, everyone in tech has experienced that. Everyone building an extra room on their house has experienced it. Sure. <laughs> right? So what would, the, what would the, one of these big tech companies pay to license ShipRush from you like on an annual basis? Ballpark. You know, we charged a lot. It was hundreds of thousands a year. 
Oh, hundreds of thousands a year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and was that multi-year contracts or one-year renewal? Yeah, or how did multi-year. You typically, it's multi-year up front, and then it may go year to year downstream. When you say multi-year up front, do they pay for multiple no, years No, no. They, they would commit to two or three or four or five years up front. And okay. then the deals often went year to year after the initial period. Got it. And so what kind of churn rate did you have? I'm imagining it was pretty sticky. Like once people sign up, very sticky. Would you have lost customers very frequently or? Well, on these big licensing deals, we lost close to zero. The, um, the key, one of the keys in structuring these deals, it's not even the size of the deal in dollars that's important as it's the long-term success of the deal. Right, it doesn't do us any good, and this is one. Actually, this gets. I'm I'm going to come to a question underneath the question you just asked. Sure. Many times, when people would want our technology, they would want to do a revenue share with us or a pay per user. Now, the problem with an ar- an architecture, a business architecture of that kind for us, is that we don't have access to their users; only they do. So what if they fail to market it? What if they fail to promote it? Why should that roll back to us? So the the keys to success, the only thing we could do to make it succeed was to make sure that ShipRush worked and did all the things it was supposed to do and was a valuable tool for their users. Actually getting it in their users' hands was not in our control. So a good example of this is the UPS and FedEx shipping that's been in QuickBooks for a long time. If QuickBooks fails to promote that feature, saying, hey, this is in here, right? This, this, this is in here. You can print a UPS label sure. right from Insider App. If they fail to tell anybody, they won't have enough users and the project won't look like a success, but not because of anything we did or didn't do. Our part could be done perfectly, right? So this is where I come back to however you architect the business terms needs to lean toward success and allocate the risk appropriately. Sure. So in your case, you didn't do rev share. You did right. these these multi-year licensing deals. To me, that sounds like you're not carrying any of the risk. <laughs> the QuickBooks right. of the enterprise company is is right. 100% taking the We're risk. We're also not getting the big deal. gain, right? We're not getting the big gain. If this thing makes zillions of dollars at right. 15,000 users, yeah. we aren't going to see that. We, you know, we aren't going to get any benefit from yeah. that. But our downside risk is completely managed. We are getting paid reasonably for what we're delivering. Yeah. And we're getting paid enough that we can continue to invest in the thing we're giving them. If you price it too low, you find yourself a year or two in saying, oh, we can't put any more time on this. It's not worth it. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned investment because I was going to ask you, how did you finance the growth of ShipRush? Did you raise outside money or? Good question. We never raised outside money. We started in the 90s as a networking consulting house. Mm-hmm. Back in the 90s, that was a big thing. Um, and so we were a networking consulting house. Originally, it was just me and then brought on a couple of people. We started reselling a product called Goldmine, which was a customer relationship. No, well, yeah. Okay. So we were one of the big gold mine houses. And we started in writing software by writing add-ons to gold mine. No, interesting. And that, okay. and that was our transition, our pivot to become from a consulting house into a software house was writing gold mine add-ons. And so we were completely bootstrapped. We never went to VCs. We never went to angels. We were able to, we just took everything that we made and kept reinvesting it. 
And who's the we? I understand there was another Zimbaroff. Is that your spouse? Yes, or? that was Anya. Yeah. Um, Anya was never involved in the business actively. But, okay. Uh, but the LLC was owned by both of us. And the business was really me and whoever my chief engineer was at the time, um, which uh, was my brother-in-law for the first few years and then was an engineer we brought on in the late 90s. And the approach always was uh, to take out as little as possible and keep investing in the product because that was the only road to something, something ultimately useful. It's easy to cut expenses and milk the business, but the business isn't going to be very happy if you do that. How did that impact your relationship with Anya? Because you were at this business from 93, when it was Z Firm, as I right. understand, 92. Mm-hmm. All the way up to like 18 months ago. Yep. yep. It's a long time not yep. to pull out money out of the company. <laughs> and I know a lot of spouses who are like, mm-hmm. This was a nice little project for you, but I'd like you to get paid properly now because mm-hmm. there's things we want to do in our personal life, like buy a house, buy whatever. Mm-hmm. And it creates all sorts of tension. If mm-hmm. one spouse is like putting all the money back into the company and the other is mm-hmm. like sitting there saying, uh, when is this company going to start paying off? Did you guys, how did you guys stick handle that conversation? That's a good question. There really wasn't any money until the last handful of years. And he, you know, so certain things we did do, like we did, you know, we did buy a house uh, early on. We did, um, we did a bunch of things. Anya went to grad school and was in uh, grad school for several years, getting a doctorate uh, in the earlier years of the business. So that wasn't, you know, we, we were in food, we were in a house, we were meeting our needs um, and there wasn't any serious money to tap into until the last hand, handful of years when, you know, yeah, so, so we were able to pay off the house, you know, um, mm-hmm. before, before, you know, before the sale, years before the sale of the business, we were able to pay off the house, we were able to pay off our uh, honest student loans, things like that we were able to do. Um, so that actually during, while I owned the business, that was really not. Uh, a material issue that I can recall. How how big did you get Shiprush in terms of revenue or you know, some proxy for size mm-hmm. before you decided to sell? You know, we were 12 to 18 people, depending on how you count the contractors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for more than a dozen FTEs that were real uh, FTEs, 12 or 13, and then another handful of contractors. So, you know, 15 to 20 uh, total headcount at the time of the sale. And are you able to share revenue? No, I don't okay. believe I am. Okay. That's okay. Yep. That's, but, that's. And in tech, remember there is one of the issues is that in, in certain segments, and this is not restricted to tech, but it's, you find it more frequently in tech where there are different valuation paradigms. So the, you know, there's a classic valuation paradigm of some multiple of EBITDA which is, you know, a classic normal CPA's approach sure, to business valuation. Yeah. Um, in tech, if, a, if an arrangement can be seen as a strategic kind of deal, then EBITDA falls aside and it becomes a multiple of gross, even if you're, or a multiple of nothing. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's just a number. And so this is... Um, so this is, you know, one of the keys and 
in any space. I mean, this can happen even if you, you know, invent some new power tool. It doesn't have to be software. Uh, if it's perceived by the acquiring company as strategic, and especially if there are multiple possible acquiring parties, then things like, you know, what was your profit? What was your EBITDA? Blah, 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 become less relevant. Yeah. I want to I get into that now because again, as we talked about, you, you have been in business for yourself since 92, Z Firm and then mm-hmm. Shiprush. What changed? Uh, you mentioned, you know, there was, it was, it was profitable towards the end. There was money on hand. Like, was there some trigger that made you want to sell Shiprush? <laughs> Was there some trigger, a uh, big swift kick in the behind? Um, uh, you got a minute for this? Because this yeah. is going to take a minute. Um, so our business space, and this is, you know, this is kind of not every situation works like this. When we got into doing parcel shipping software, that was in the late 90s. There was no such thing as e-commerce, right? And we originally built our parcel shipping software for things like Goldmine and Act and Mm -hmm. Outlook, places where you had lists of addresses that you'd want to ship to. And then it was only in 2005-06 that we started building it for eBay and e-commerce and moved in that direction. And then in 2009... um, well, so, so the kick, and then I'll explain what led up to the kick, why the kick was such a kick. The kick was in 2014, Stamps.com acquired our number one competitor, which is a company called ShipStation. And this was really shocking to us because we had a very large business relationship with Stamps.com. They were buying a ton of our technology. Starting in 2009, Stamps.com did their first licensing arrangement with us in 2009 to connect their own shipping app to e-commerce systems like eBay and Amazon, Shopify, WooCommerce, and what have you. And then in 2011, they bought more ShipRush from us on these multi-year licensing deals. And then in 2014, out of the blue to us, they announced this large acquisition of our number one competitor. How much, rev- how much of your revenue on a percentage basis would you have been getting from stamps.com at that time? At that point, it was, nor- it was double digits, it was between you know, 12 and 24%. Mm-hmm. So it was, a, it was a big chunk of our revenue. And, um, and it was a big- And what happened? Did, I mean, did they just call you up one day and say, we're, we're giving yeah, they, you notice that all the contracts- they, <laughs> No, no, they didn't terminate the contract. They bought ShipStation, but did not do anything in their relationship with us that day or that month or even that year. Um, But six months after they bought ShipStation, they bought our other primary competitor, which is a company called ShipWorks. And so, you know, it's so our first realization was what? We're not at the top of their list for an acquisition. How'd that happen? And then to discover we're not even number two after selling them millions of dollars of tech and servicing thousands of shippers together. That was uh, a really, really big kick for us that the space was changing. You know, that's the key thing is that in certain one of the things about business. I have a friend who says his business philosophy is, he says, you know, you just need to, you need to build up 
cash reserves larger than you ever think are reasonable to survive all the downturns. And the whole point of business is just to stay in the game long enough for it to become interesting. And if you stay in long <laughs> enough and he's thinking five, 10, 15, 20 years, like he's not measuring in months, right? Yeah. You know, if you stay in long enough, you'll sooner or later find a cycle where you're making money. And um, so the opposite of that, now his business is commercial real estate. My bit, which has these big cycles, right? And he went through, you know, the dot-com crash and the 2008 crash. Mm -hmm. um, so in tech, you know, what happened is that we happened to be in a space which was e-commerce facing and the whole e-commerce landscape goes through these big shifts every three to six years. And this was a shift that all of a sudden companies like Shiprush were hot commodities to certain kinds of acquiring entities. Got it. So your first reaction, so I don't want to put words in your mouth. What was your first reaction when you learned stamps.com had made the first acquisition in ShipStation? Like what was your first, like, what did you say to Anya that night? <laughs> um, at that point, we thought, well, it's when the, and that first acquisition is like, okay, we thought we were at the top of the list, but we know we must, but we were wrong. We're just near the top of the list. So it's okay. We're okay. So I want, to, next. I want to explore that. So, so, so you, you thought you were at the top of the list. This is going to resonate with some listeners because I think uh, a lot of people think, oh, well, when you know, when ABC company wants to make an acquisition there, of course, they're going to come to us. Right. So you're, when you All say right. you were at the top of the list, I mean, had you had any conversations regarding acquisition with stamps.com in the past? Had they sort of raised the specter of the possibility before? Nothing serious, but I'll, uh, but here was, I believe my, my mistake in perspective is that I was looking at it from my chair, which is that I was a technologist and I was selling them technology that was successful. You know, they were not backing out of deals with us because we were failing to deliver. They were staying in the deals with us because we were delivering. And I sure. thought that that meant that we had proven ourselves and that we would be at the top of the list. And what I failed at was that that was actually not their framework for acquisitions. They were not the kind of company to acquire part partner organizations that were that were providing critical technology to them. They were the kind of company that was looking for business revenue growth curves. And I didn't understand that, that, you know, ShipStation had a much more aggressive growth curve than we did and were much more marketing and revenue focused than we were. And that was more interesting to stamps.com. And I failed to recognize that. So, Got it. you know, then so that's part A. Part B was that Shiprush was a relatively complex business. We were selling a product on the street that you can see at shiprush.com today, um, just you know, which looked more or less comparable to what ShipStation was selling on the street. But so much of our business was doing these white label technology deals with the FedExes of the world sure. that our business was actually very nuanced and not something that you could look at in half a page, you know, you could not summarize our business on half a piece of paper. And 
that makes sense to me. I want to go back to this this the the, the rationale of a strategic. You thought they would be interested because you delivered great technology. Yep. What you came to learn was that stamps.com wanted new S curves, new revenue, you know, right. new exciting revenue sources. Right. What happened to make you realize that? Like what how did you come become aware that stamps.com wanted different things in their acquisitions? You know, as a just thinking about the acquisition of ShipStation and trying to come to a rationalization for it, you know, trying to get out of my shoes and my perspective mm-hmm. and think about think about it from their perspective. And then when they acquired Ships Ship Works, um, you know, realizing that, oh, they're building a portfolio, you know, so that's like, oh, it's like General Motors. Like we don't care if you buy a Buick or a Chevy or an Oldsmobile, you know, or a GMC. Like it's a Cadillac. Yeah, yeah, it's you're coming to us either way, right? So um, how'd that work out for them? <laughs> for stamps or for GM? <laughs> no, for GM. I'm yeah, like, right. it's not working out very well. Yeah, Oldsmobile and Buick are gone. Here I'm saying, you know, I'm realizing while I say that, though, <laughs> I'm mentioning things that are ancient history at this point. So, uh, um, but it, it, it worked out for General Motors for decades. I mean, let's sure, be clear, like sure. all of these yeah, approaches yeah. work for, you know, have their yeah, cycle. No, Business is a, is a story of cycles. So, um, so they were building this portfolio and, uh, and they were buying the number one company of each portfolio flavor, whereas Shiprush was kind of the number two in three different flavors. So, um, you know, we were, the, we were the only company that was doing these licensing deals that was selling our technology to others. Nobody was doing that, but that's a very that's a very nuanced place to be and was not something they needed. Got it. And was, was your assumption that, uh, let me, let me not give the answer to the question. And what were you assuming your exit to be at this time back mm-hmm. in 2014? Was it your assumption that you would eventually be acquired by somebody? You know, I always used the approach of increasing success by lowering expectations. So I really was not thinking in terms of an exit, especially once the business became reasonably profitable. It's like, oh, you know, another several years of this and I'm happy. You know, I've made enough out of the business and I've succeeded. So I was never And one of the things that helped me have that perspective is that we were bootstrapped. We'd been in the game for a long time. I wasn't, we didn't have investors who were looking for an exit, which, you know, that's obviously going to change somebody's perspective a lot who's running a business. So until 2014, you know, the, an acquisition was not in, at the top of my list. Once 2014 came to a close, it's like, oh, if we don't sell, we're going to be up against this marketing machine because stamps.com is an excellent marketing organization that's always been uh, their claim to fame in the <clears throat> parcel shipping ecosystem. So if we don't sell, uh, we're going to be up against this marketing monolith that will be very challenging. Now, the flip side to that is, oh, well, that's fine. We'll just be selling our tech to everyone else who needs to compete with them. So there's still a place for us in the world. 
we think. Who else was out there? I mean, I, I think of Stamps as being the giant gorilla. Was there anyone, like who was the biggest competitor for Stamps at the time? Once they started rolling up, well, uh, so the competitor to Stamps until 2014, until these acquisitions, the competitor to Stamps, was a com- Stamps.com is based in Los Angeles, Southern California. And the competitor to Stamps.com was in Northern California in Silicon Valley called Indicia. And part of the shiprush business for a number of years had been playing these two players off of each other because they each offered, uh, they were unique. They were the only two companies that were licensed with the postal service to provide technology to print postal shipping labels. Because we were talking before about how that's a postage stamp, that's sure, money. Sure, sure, sure. So yeah. it's very, very regulated to print these labels. And these were the only two companies that were licensed by the postal service to provide technology to tech companies like ShipRush and ShipStation and everyone else to print these labels. And we'd made a whole business playing these two firms off of each other saying, oh, we'll move our users onto your tech with these business terms, or we'll move them onto your tech for these better business terms. And every couple of years, we would move our users around. And then in 2015, um, a really big thing happened, which is stamps.com acquired their competitor, Indicia. Mm -hmm. And that, that was when we knew we would either sell or be gone in a couple of years. That was, that was, that was, um, I went through about period of about a year where I understood because they knew who all our customers were and Decent Stamps knew two thirds of our customers and we saw them go after smaller players and take those customers and put them on ship station. And so we knew at that point that we were in a truly existential crisis. Did did you create any bad blood with either Indicia executives or Stamps.com executives by by kind of playing them off each other over by doing the years, what we did? as you described? My, my point is, mm-hmm. like, once Stamps had acquired Indicia, I'm wondering if, if you're playing one of them off each other over the years came back to created some bad, bad blood. So they're like, okay, we're going to put these guys out of business because we're sick and tired of being, you know, our, our rates being jacked up. Yeah. Uh, et cetera. Did you get any of that blowback or? Um, it was very complicated. We did not get the direct kind of thing that you're, that seems obvious here. It's like, yeah. oh yeah, now we've got them where we want them, et cetera, et cetera. Shiprush was too big a player to really mess with in a bad, bad way because the acquisition of Indicia was a huge ripple. It was a huge tidal wave, you know, one of these waves going across the ecosystem that the people in the ecosystem felt strongly, but people outside it wouldn't have understood, you know, wouldn't have impacted them directly because mm-hmm. everything kept working. So um, it was the major in that, you know, five-year period, that was the single major event uh, to occur in this parcel shipping technology space. And it went through antitrust review. Like I was going to say, weren't the people in Washington? Yes, they were. There was a whole antitrust review. The whole acquisition was put on hold for a number of months. I was actually contacted by the folks at the Department of Justice or Department of Commerce. I'm trying to remember. Commerce, yeah, probably. Um, Who knows? Who were were doing this. I was part of a couple of conference calls where they can't, you know, these attorneys at one of the agencies in Washington had a whole list of questions of the things Mm. they were concerned about. And 
you know, as we know, as we've all talked about in all these different contexts, you know, their concerns were not my concerns, right? Or my concern was having multiple companies offering this tech. That was just not their concern. Their yeah. concern was how much Sally was going to pay to buy a pair of shoes online. Okay. So, so, it, sorry, a lot of our listeners like won't really want to know the plumbing yeah, of the shipping things, which is cool, but they will definitely identify with the sense that an 800-pound gorilla, if they turn their sights on them, has mm-hmm. the potential to put them out of business, which is triggering their their decision to sell, or at least the decision yes. to get on their front foot and start thinking. So it did, in right. your case, these two guys merge mm-hmm. and you're in a vulnerable spot. I think you're used the words, if we don't sell, we're in a business within two years. Yeah. yeah. So, so what next? What, like, did you... Did you hire an M&A firm? Did you, like, what was your next step at that point? Our next step was to hire an M&A firm. And the process is almost more important than the action. So I'd never done this before. So I called an old, old friend of mine who was an M&A attorney and said, hey, <laughs> uh, hey, friend, um, I, need, I need an investment banker. And he said, oh, talk to firms such and such in downtown Seattle, which I did. We hired them, you know, just to give some context for how this this kind of thing goes. They say, oh, well, you know, we charge an upfront fee. We only take serious people who are serious about selling. Mm-hmm. Their upfront fee at that time was $10,000 one time. Check to get them on your side, paid the fee. They asked for a list of companies from me that I thought were a likely acquisition uh, folks. I gave them a list. They worked that list, which was maybe half a dozen companies. Um, We had, as part of that, we had two, maybe three management presentations, right? Like the way it works is the investment Mm -hmm. banker shops you around. The interested parties say, okay, we want, you know, an hour or two on a Zoom call. Even then it was on Zoom. One of them was in person. Um, And uh, you go through a whole presentation with them, answer their questions. And they did, that firm did get us uh, a low ball offer from one of our existing licensees. So we got one offer in that process. It was really low. It was from one of the companies on the list I'd given them. It's like, I didn't need you guys to call them. I could have called them. And, uh, and the you way- say low ball offer, why do you say low ball? Like what multiple of revenue was, was the well, offer? You know, um, the offer was for- you know, maybe one to two times our gross revenue at the time. Mm-hmm. But the th- reason it was lowball is that it was, is that stamps.com had created a market, right? They had done multiple acquisitions and kind of s- established what a multiple could be. And, and what were those multiples that stamps, that. what was stamps paying? For Their multiples were in kind of the, I don't know, I don't know this hard, um, but it was kind of in the six or seven to 11 times gross revenue. Times revenue, right. Yeah, so so big numbers line. compared big to numbers. one to two. Yeah. Okay, so the M&A firm goes out, gets a customer to give you a lowball offer, and you're like, ah, not I'm what I was looking for. What's the next step? Well, at that point, what happened uh, is that the senior partner at the M&A firm was almost literally pounding the table, telling me, take the deal. And... Uh, and, and here's one of the key things, right? Like you pay an M&A firm of success fee, you know, typically 5%. Mm-hmm. 
of the deal. Mm-hmm. It's going to be three to six, but four or five is normal. And here they had gotten us a lowball offer from a company that I had brought to them that I easily could have called myself. And, and they're not saying, they're not comparing it to the other deals like I am. They're just saying, take the deal. I said, no. And, and we ended up firing them and going back to the drawing board to become independent of the stamps and indicia technology because that dependence was bad optically. It was bad for the future of the business. It was just bad at every level. And the offer was low enough that we just didn't feel there was downside risk and staying independent for another couple of years and seeing what we could do with the situation. So help me understand that. So, so while, so in what way were you dependent on the stamps and indicia kind of platform? I guess their labels were what? They were the only ones who could give us the tech to print a priority label. Ah, so label. And in, the, and in e-commerce, remember, in, B, in B2C e-commerce, right? It's business to consumer e-commerce, 60 to 80% of the shipping volume was going on the postal service. And so you were dependent on that because they had the license with the U.S. Postal Service. Right. You didn't. Right. So what did you apply for a license yourself with the U.S. We, Postal Service? We did a couple of magical things. Um, one of them is that two companies and two companies had early stage technology to compete with the stamps and indicia technology, and that those things surfaced at just the right moment. And they were an early pre-beta whatever, but because we were well-connected in the space, they approached us and said, hey, by the way, we have this. It's like, you do? We are definitely interested. And so that happened. And the other thing that happened is we changed our business model. In the past, when our software used indicia or used stamps, the customer opened an account with Indicia or Stamps and paid those companies. And we were not in the payment chain. We were yeah. not in the revenue stream. There was a revenue stream to us that where the customer paid us $50 a month for our software. And then the, the customer was actually buying the labels directly from Indicia or Stamps. We changed the model. So they bought the labels from us and we bought them from the backend technology. So we were in the payment chain so that we could be truly independent of this tech because we'd been so burned. And we had, and the reason this is momentous is two things. A, as a business, we had very consciously avoided being in the payment chain for 15 years. We're like, we don't want those headaches. We don't want customers calling us, telling us their account is $4 off. Like, we just don't want that. And we don't have the business office to handle all that cash flow. So we changed. We said, no, we're getting into it. We understand it's complicated. We understand it's messy. We're all of a sudden going to be in the payment chain of millions of dollars a month of parcel shipping flow. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a serious commitment. To, to build the infrastructure and to take on this role. It's two serious hats. It's a tech hat and it's just a, a role hat, a business responsibility hat. So we were going to do it and we spent a year and we did it. And, and then we shopped the business again and we hired a new I, banker. This is such an important point. I want to make sure everybody listening is, is, is capturing this idea. If you are in the chain but you don't control the chain. Ultimately, you don't own the direct relationship with the consumer. Yes. You are in a much more vulnerable position. Whereas if right. you 
are- You're in the payment chain. If you're in the payment chain, in particular, the customer thinks of you as the provider, uh, that puts you in a power position uh, when it comes to an acquisition. And so you made that change Mm -hmm. to put yourself in, as you described, the payment chain. Mm -hmm. And what next? So you did a year, then you went and shopped the business again. What what, word did you take Yeah, The key thing is that I took a few months to find the right banker. And I would say Mm -hmm. this is one of the biggest takeaways from my experience is that the right banker makes all the difference. All the difference. Right banker, you're referring to an M&A professional who who helps you. Now, okay, so how did you find the right banker? Because a lot of people are listening to this saying, okay, well, how did you find him or her? So I'll, I'll describe the process I used, and this is going to vary for each, you know, each industry and what have sure. you. Early on in my process, back in 2014, a friend of mine who worked at a much larger tech company and had been involved in a bunch of M&A stuff had referred me to, he said, oh, we have this M&A guy who's amazing. He's Australian, and he's really known in this little niche that we're in, and he did deals for us like you wouldn't believe. So I started talking to this guy. This guy's a one-man show. That's one of the crazy things, at least in tech, and I don't know if this is true in other segments, but in tech, a lot of these M&A firms are little boutique organizations of one, two, three, four people who, who exist purely on their reputation. It's quite remarkable. So this guy was very upfront from the beginning. He said, I'm not your banker. You can come to me with any questions, but I don't know your segment for Shiprush. I don't know Shiprush. I don't know that world. I don't do e-commerce. What he specialized in was technology for streaming media. That was his niche. And he was known worldwide for negotiating M&A deals and representing buyers and sellers in that niche. So did he refer you to someone though, or what was Not quite. What happened was I also then went to my attorney who had been my business attorney for many years. And this is also a very important thing in the picture is to have a consistent legal person who knows Mm -hmm. your whole contractual landscape because that attorney has been doing it for for you for a long time. And my attorney, you know, went to an M&A attorney and and I started hearing this one name who I then checked with the guy from Australia and everybody say, I've been referred to so-and-so and everybody said, solid, 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 solid. And I was being referred to one name who was, who turned out to be one of a team of three or four teeny little boutique firm, New York, San Francisco. I ended up not dealing with that guy so much, but with his partners in San Francisco, uh, Irfan Iqbal and Alan Kogan. And, and they were, Amazing. They were also a lot more expensive. Like this is, you know, it's the classic get what you pay for, I guess. Um, you know, just to help everyone understand like what this looks like. Like I was dead serious about being acquired. I I now had multiple people saying these guys were really solid and top-notch, you know, people who I knew were themselves top-notch. And that's one of the things, right? It wasn't, when I went to my friend the first time around who did some M&A work, it's like, yeah, a third of his work was M&A work. He wasn't an M&A focused only attorney. A third of his work is M&A work, you know, and he refers me off to mm-hmm. a to a firm that just wants to get a deal done. You know, they don't specialize in this industry. I didn't know to ask that. I didn't know what questions to ask. Like, you really want to know, tell me the deals you've done in my segment recently. Mm-hmm. You no, know, tell me you, who you know. 
You mentioned the first firm charged you 10K up front. What did Irfan and Island charge you up front as a, as a work fee? 25,000 per calendar quarter. Per quarter. Per and quarter. was there any cap on how long, how many quarters did they I went into it saying, I want to spend six months on this. If we succeed, great. If we don't, I want to move on and focus, refocus on my business. And like, was that a non-refundable work fee? Non-refundable. A- You're paying them 25K, so they answer the phone for three months. And, and, was, and was, that, uh, <laughs> was that deducted from their success fee? Um, their stock terms were no. I negotiated it to yes. You know, I think going into it with a clear idea, look, these things take a lot of your energy as a business owner. So part of my thing was like, I will give this my attention for a number of months, but not for a year. Like that was, that I didn't feel I had that to give it. I felt like if there was a possibility here that six months was a reasonable amount of time. And we were actually, you know, we were, we were in lockup in six months, like from the time I signed with them to the time that we were actually had accepted an offer and we're in diligence was right about six months. Got it. And so let's work through what Efron and Allen did. Uh, you signed with them and what was the next step? So these guys really have their act together. And that is something that I will say is like, you know, really early if, some, if an outfit like this has their act together once, I guess. Once what did they do in the first few weeks? They did a pre-diligence. Their like their first thing was they send you a whole huge long checklist of stuff they want to see because they want to know how ready you are for diligence right from okay. the beginning, not from four months in. And day one, they want to know that when they get to the home stretch that you actually have your act together. How did you handle the pre-diligence? Did you hire someone to do it for you or did you do it yourself? I did it all myself. Wow. I did it all myself, but I could because I had, the business was clean. Like, you know, we had a lot of contracts, but I had them all in one place. What was the most surprising thing on the pre-diligence list? The the list, the, the, the thing that you're like, really? They want to know this? Yeah, they want a copy of your HR manual, you know, like- you're like, what HR manual would that be? No, we had one. We had <laughs> oh, did one. you? I was, yeah, no, we see, I'm a third generation American small businessman, right? Like my, both of my grandfathers ran businesses. Um, my father's father had a whole series of businesses. Uh, my father ran one business for essentially his whole career. He had a couple smaller ones before that. Um, so, uh, so no, I always had an HR manual. I had an HR mm-hmm. manual and we had four employees. When there were four people in the office, I had an HR manual. What did right. I do? I called my dad. I said, dad, I need an HR manual. He said, I'll send you mine, doctor it up. So, so I took it. Yeah, that's <laughs> I changed. I, you know, it made it appropriate for my business. His business was a very different kind of business. So I had to change some stuff and uh, still- I had one. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's, so, so they send you the pre-diligence, you feed them that information, then what? Like who came up with the list of potential The banker. So they asked me for my list and they asked me for two lists. Actually, they said, give us a list of companies, you know, that might be interested and send us a list of companies we should not contact because in our space, there were, we, I was very concerned. I was probably excessively concerned in retrospect. I was really concerned that if stamps.com knew we were actively selling, that they would do something to create, to make that impossible. So there were certain players, you know, even FedEx, right? Like FedEx and UPS had experienced 
this whole suite of their partners being acquired by stamps.com of their of the biggest partners servicing the small medium business sure. segment for shipping software we're all getting rolled up like that's kind of intimidating even if you're ups so um so anyway, they asked me for two lists, but they then built a much longer list. And this is also one of the signs of a good banker is that they were shopping us to all these companies I'd never heard of. I'd never heard of Descartes. Uh, really, I hadn't. And most of the companies that they shopped us to, I had either not heard of or had not considered a candidate. And they shopped Ballpark, us Ballpark, how many names on the big list? 30 to 40. Uh, they, on their big list after yeah. they took yours and they did their own. Right. Did, uh, I gave them a handful. I really yeah. gave them, you know, right around five. They went and did their work and came up with a list of something like 35 to 40. They built, you know, the, the teaser sheet, like a two pager, mm-hmm. two, three pager that they sent to those 30 or 40. And then the interested parties from that, they, we did the management presentation. How many of those do you think you did? About a dozen. 10, 12. About a dozen. Yeah. And then how many, how many offers did you get? So the banker then runs a process. When you have a situation like this of multiple interested part parties, the banker says, okay, we're going to be accepting offers, whatever it is, February 1st. Um, and so then we had multiple offers. I don't know if I can go into exactly how many, but we had multiple offers and we had multiple offers above the minimum threshold we were seeking. So sorry, you said minimum threshold. You mean you had a number? I had a target. I had and a target. What was your target in terms of multiple of revenue? Because you well, got an I, offer of one to two. Yeah, my, my target my target in dollars was ten million. Okay. That if you know offers over ten, I was really interested in. And ballpark, uh, what kind of multiple of revenue? Because I'm just going back to originally. I'm not sure I should go ball. into that too much. Okay. I don't know, where, I don't know where exactly where my lines are. So I'm okay. No problem. That. So assuming it, I'm going to just sort of make some basic judgments and assume it was higher than one to two. Yeah. And you don't have to, to confirm or deny that, but <laughs> that's, that's all good. Um, and, but, but for you, it was a number. Interestingly, what's magic about 10 in your mind? What was magic about 10 in your mind? You know, it would give me enough to give all the staff a good bonus and it would give me enough to say, maybe this is the only business I'm going to run in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Did you go through what financial advisors tell you, you know, take 3% or 4% and like you can live off that for X number? Like, did you do any of that math or was it not more? A ton of it. Not a ton. Okay. No. But you kind of had it and you knew enough that it was, it would be enough yeah. if you yeah. Yeah. got it. Got it. And so anything north of 10. So you mentioned you got multiple offers. Were, were there multiple offers above 10? Yes. Got it. Yes, we got had multi- it. We had, and and that, and this is where the banker does everything. Like I've seen situations in my segment where the business owner tries to be the banker and tries to run mm-hmm. the whole thing. And I knew a couple things. One, even though I was a very accomplished negotiator, because that was all these big licensing deals, sure. I was doing it all. Um, I knew that this was a deal I should not be negotiating. Too much of my identity was tied up in this. Um, and uh, so I knew that that was a big part of why I knew I knew I had to have a banker. 
And the banker is running it all. When you have multiple interesting offers, the banker goes back to them and, say, and says, hey, we have multiple interesting offers. Would you like to revise your offer? And mm -hmm. so they come back um, and that runs for a couple of days. And on a then, percentage basis, how much were they able to improve the offers on a percentage basis doing that? Oh, like, gosh, pretty good. I would say they... the probably went up another 10 or 20%. Okay. Okay. Yeah. By sort of playing one off the other. Yeah. By telling folks that, you know, this was serious and that they had to do their best. Um, mm -hmm. They did really well. I mean, that's the thing. Like on the one hand, 5% success fee, that's a lot of dollars, you know, and you're a small business owner. A grand on 10. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a lot of dollars. Um, on the other hand, like there is no question that these guys more than earned that. Mm -hmm. Everything they did from all the companies they shopped us to, to the cleanliness of the process, to how seriously acquirers took us because we were represented and it wasn't me doing the calling, that's right? Like point. that's a totally different thing. If I call five companies and say, hey, I'm looking to sell versus, you know, an established firm, these guys, their firm at the time was called Inertia Advisors. Now they're called Elantra. You know, when, when somebody from Elantra or Inertia, who's an established person, this is all they do. This is the only thing they do. They've got a clean, clean, clean reputation. When they call the corp dev, right? Because at, at big companies, the people who do the acquisitions are corp dev. Mm -hmm. When they call corp dev, corp dev listens. Like this is an opportunity. This company is almost certainly going to be sold, right? The, the ship rush in this case, the company being represented by uh, Irfan and Allen. And so like, if we, if we want, if we actually want this, we better stop and pay attention. That makes sense. And so who ultimately is at the, at the stage of the game, if you can share, I know Descartes was there because they were the winning bidder mm -hmm. ultimately. Mm -hmm. um, who else was in the mix? Are you able to share the other names? Of the types um, of companies? No, no. I mean, some of them were companies that we had business relationships with one kind or another. Mm -hmm. You know, there's one interesting twist, which is one of these things that, that happens. Um, there was one very big company that uh, had told us from the beginning they wanted in on the process. They were interested in acquiring us. They wanted in on the process. They had actually been part of that first process in 2014. And I had done, I had to rent a room with the high-end video conferencing equipment to give them a whole presentation with yep. the first banker. And they had like eight people in the room on their side. We did this whole huge thing. And when I hired Irfan and, and Alan, they told Irfan and Alan from the start, we want in, we want in, we're interested, we're interested. Two weeks before and so we did the whole management presentation with them and everything. And they're a very big, you know, they're a Fortune 700 company, very big company, billions of dollars of revenue every year. Two weeks before the process starts, when we're accepting bids, mm -hmm. senior, senior guy there gets me on the phone to say, Roth, want to let you know we've got some internal organization to do and we're not going to be participating. It's like, okay. Nothing I can do about that, right? Like, okay, you're not going to be participating in your call. And, and Irfan and Alan do the whole process. We accept an offer. We're now in the exclusive diligence period for 90 days. We're about halfway through that. And diligence is going, but it's not going fast. The same big company 
calls me up, Ruff, can you fly down to San Francisco for a meeting near the SFO airport? Sure, fly down. And here's the same executive along with his chief henchman to say, we got our internal stuff all organized. We're interested. Okay, but, but you've <laughs> per- signed a no shop clause, presumably in the lockup. So aren't you kind of in, uh, I'm sh- are you kind of in breach of that clause to even meet with them? I didn't know what it was about. Okay. So the answer okay. is I, I had no idea what it was about when I flew down. Yeah. Um, so I was okay meeting with them. So, but yeah. now th- this is a very, very delicate moment. Okay. Mm-hmm. This is a very delicate moment because if I say the wrong thing, I can blow everything up. Okay. So my answer to them was, thank you very much. I will let Alan and her fund know. Right. Because I am not doing this deal. And this is a very key thing. Right. Like this guy was like, why wasn't he going through his corp dev to talk to Alan and Irfan to begin with? Right. In retrospect, I did not. I have I don't think I've even thought this thought until this moment. (laughs) I don't think I've thought this thought until this moment. Why am I hearing directly from a senior executive um, about a thing that their corp dev and my bankers have been talking about exclusively. I've never been in the conversation. I'm only really th- realizing that at this moment. And in a sense, he may have been trying to fish how the process was going. Per- perhaps, I obviously don't know. So, um, so I let Alan and her fund know, which actually has a very positive a salutary effect because they're what does a salutary mean? A salut- a good. It means a good okay. effect. Okay. It has okay. a good effect on diligence, which um, which is they're able to go to Descartes that we're in exclusivity with and say, we've received an unsolicited you know, inquiry uh, related to acquisition. Because what you're obligated to do under the terms of this lockup period, the the Acquired the company that is for sale is acquired to let the acquiring entity know if any unsolicited offers come in. That's going to light a fire in a day card pretty quickly. <laughs> so all of a sudden, diligence went into high gear, <laughs> right? Like because once that that ninety day lockup ends, we could potentially say we're not renewing it because we have this other interested party, right? Yeah. So diligence went into high gear. Descartes, as you can see, they do a lot of acquisitions. You know. Before the pandemic, they would do kind of two to four a year. So they are a real machine. They have a process that is very and what is it, what, what, for, people, for folks who don't know Descartes, what do they do in layman's terms and what do they see in you guys? Well, Descartes is a logistics technology company. So when you think of moving goods, physical goods, they have technology that covers many, many parts of moving things around the world and around the block and around the city. So they have technology that helps book containers on container ships to move from Asia to the US or wherever. They have technology to do customs clearing, to get all that that container of goods through customs. They have technology to, um, if you have a fleet of trucks, you know, deliver, say you are a, fur, a chain of furniture stores and you have a warehouse or multiple warehouses and some couple dozen furniture stores, they have the software that let you t- that will tell you what to put on every truck to deliver out to the stores or to deliver to the customers who bought. So the this houses. was just another compliment to what they were already yeah, this doing. Was, this I'm was surprised they weren't on your first list in a way. I mean, you know the shipping space yeah. as well as you do. Because they weren't How that big in parcel. And US okay. parcel at that time, they hadn't crossed my radar. They owned hmm. a company called Oslink, which was adjacent to us. 
so you could so i knew about oz but i didn't know about descartes interesting um, interesting and yeah. so this unsolicited bid from the fortune 700 company kind of lit a fire in a Descartes and they accelerated due diligence. They went from kind of dragging their feet to, okay, let's get this yeah. thing done. Yeah. It got full more attention. If only we could all manufacture an unsolicited bid during due diligence, our lives would be much better, but good for you for a not yeah. negotiating. Cause that would have been a breach. And yeah. also, yeah. you know, it, it, it would, uh, isn't that interesting? Well, that's, that's fantastic. Um, and so the ultimate deal, as I've seen, because Descartes, was generous and actually published the deal. So it looks like it was 14 million cash up front plus a $3 million earnout or the potential right. for an extra $3 million. What was the, the earnout period like? Did you, did you hit your bogey or? Yeah, we hit it. So the way a lot of these deals in the tax sphere are is they set a top line revenue number target. And this was a two year thing. So there was a target for year one, there's a target for year two. Um, and if you hit it, you get it. And if you miss it, you don't. Um, some of these deals, you know, my understanding is that in some of these deals, everybody kind of knows up front the company's not going to hit it. You know, in yeah. our case, we had strong confidence we would. In fact, part of our confidence came from the fact that this big company who had who had pulled out of the process and then put themselves back in, kind of. Uh, I was actively negotiating a big tech licensing deal with them hmm. during this entire period. And the announcement by Descartes came two days after I inked the deal. So I, so like as part of diligence, we're showing them drafts of this contract that hasn't been signed yet, right? You do, that's not normal. Normally they're sure. seeing all the executed contracts, right? Which is every deal has that. Sure. But here we were actively negotiating a, a pretty big for us licensing deal. So we had to surface that. That was part of our revenue projection was that we were going to land this deal. And um, and so here we ink the deal, you know, whatever it was, let's say it was on a, a Monday. The acquisition was announced on a Wednesday or Thursday. It was just a few days later. Um, so here I've already hit, I've already goosed our revenue the day that the acquisition is closed. The big company then, of course, calls me that day saying, what the heck? Um, you know, we I'm thought sure we were they doing business terms, by the way. Yeah, right. Yeah. I'm sure they said, what the heck? <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> you know, we thought we were doing business with this, you know, small company in Seattle. Now, all of a sudden, it's this bigger logistics company. So they had to be, uh, they had to be calmed down. Uh, and, and there were no problems with that licensing deal. Everything was delivered a-okay. So you knew... You had this in the bag, this first year revenue bogey. You, right. If this contract came through, you could hit the one year. What about the second year? Well, that wasn't enough for the one year. We needed growth from other places too. That was just a piece of the growth we needed. You know, we, we needed just to continue to execute and continue to grow the business. You know, there's, mm -hmm. it, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of potential in the space. So it's, it was, we had a lot of confidence that we could continue to grow. Um, you know, even without marketing support, because we'd never had a lot of that on our own. Was with the, was the earnout structured so that it was um, either zero or one, like you either hit it or you didn't, and yeah, you one hit it or like did that. that? Yeah, you didn't so get there, a percentage. There wasn't. There, there are like, there are percentage earnouts, but not in this one. In in your case, it was like either you hit it or you don't. Correct. And you move on. Correct. And it sounds like you hit it in both mm -hmm. of the years, mm -hmm. which is which is which is great. 
did they try to keep you at Descartes after the second year and say, oh, would well, you manage this division for us? Or did they, was there any sort of negotiation to try to keep you on as an employee? You know, I kind of wish there had been. Oh, um, is that right? Yeah. Why? I, I, well, I expected there would be, partly because one of the things that happens in these conversations, sometimes, not always, is that the acquiring company heaps praise on the company they're acquiring. And maybe yeah. that's just part of the dance. You know, sure. uh, now at this point, I kind of say, oh, that must just be part of the dance. Um, so, you know, it is in a lot of the bigger companies that do acquisitions, the Microsofts and Amazons of the world, Facebooks of the world, they often structure the deals with longer term incentives for the leadership to stay, for, you know, that goes in four five, six years. Um be outside of that top tier, you don't find that as much. And a lot of it just has to do with what's the strategy of the acquiring company. Is the acquiring company trying to build a team or is the acquiring company have some other agenda? But in your case, you said you kind of wish they had. Why? Would you have worked for Dick? I like I, you know, I liked the team I was working with. I was working with a, you know, we had worked together at Shiprush for 18 years. The core team but had you been have together to be for 18 <laughs> years. And we really liked be. spending time together. And yeah. so, you know, like I was not, I had no problem going to work every day. Uh, I liked what I was doing and I liked who I was doing it with. I was not burned out. See that my burnout stopped when I sold the business because when I sold the business, I didn't have to worry if the power was going to be on. Yeah. I didn't have to worry if the data center was going to have a problem. So like my life got so much better the moment the transaction closed. So, yeah, I mean, I just, I wasn't burned out at that level, but hmm. uh, the, you know, mo the, the heart of the core team has all moved on at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Literally, literally I've done 300 of these interviews or more. Mm -hmm. And like, you're the first person I have ever interviewed, I think maybe, you know what, Jay Steinfeld from blinds.com, I think stayed at Home Depot after, but I think literally everyone else has been ready to hit eject like the day their earnout ends. So, so <laughs> that is what I ultimately like. did. And that is what the acquiring company assumed I would do. Yeah. But, uh, but it wasn't the path I thought I was on until the last couple months. But you, you do raise a very interesting point, which I've heard before, which is like when the check clears and that money is in your bank account and it can't be taken away, you're kind of playing with house money a little bit in the, in the fact that you can get back to sort of just enjoying your work and not worrying yeah. about these heavy things like right. such a huge percentage of your net worth tied to the outcome of this right. deal, blah, 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 right. blah, blah. Right. Well, oh, I'm so, you get ahead. so much headspace back. Like that's yeah. the thing. When you're a business owner, you're worried about everything. Is someone going to call in sick tomorrow morning? Is the power going to be on? Is this going to happen? Is that going to happen? You're managing 105 little things every moment of every day. And you're worrying about it at 10 at night, not just at 10 in the morning. Mm -hmm. And then once the check clears, like you say, the, the main thing that happened to me was, oh, all I have to worry about is the software, the product that, that I'm in charge of. That's it. But I only have to worry about the product. I don't have, exactly. I don't have to worry about the other 105 things. So that did absolutely increase my my pleasure and work a lot. Hey, Descartes, if you're listening, Raphael is available. You can. Uh, no, there you kidding. go. Oh, I, I talked to some of the guys over there. I'm in touch. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Um, <laughs> this is so great. I, I appreciate you sharing the story. 
with us. I think there's a ton for people to learn. Um, what, what, are, what are you doing now? Where, where can people reach out? Is there a website they can find you on? Or what's the best way for folks to reach out as they're listening? And, the, and wanna, the way to find me is on my LinkedIn profile, Raphael okay. Zimbaroff with an F on LinkedIn. That is my presence. And that's where I do my business communication. Um, I am we'll doing- put that in the show notes as well. Cool. You know, and I, and I do help small business owners think about how their business is structured. I, negotiation coaching is uh, a strength of mine. Uh, and anything that has to do with technology and logistics is obviously my backyard. That's awesome. So it's Raphael Zimbaroff. And so if folks need to double check the spelling, builttocell.com, and you'll see the show notes there. And you can check uh, in with Raphael on LinkedIn. And I'm grateful for you sharing the story. It's great. And, I, and I'm glad that it all worked out for uh, so well. Thank you, John. This has been an interesting conversation. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling, where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia. If you like what you've just heard, subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Just go to builttosell.com. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.